Uh, but we're back in uh, Romans chapter 1, so I'm just going to hold my notes because this feels more comfortable. Uh, we're, we're, the, the, the plan, like I said last week, is to study the book of Romans, and Lord willing, we're going to try to get through the book of Romans in three semesters. Um, I know that sounds like a lifetime, but I see the preacher over here just looked up at me. He's like, that's, that's uh, a tall task right there. Um, and trust me, I know this is only the second week, um, but, that, but that's the goal. And um, so last week we looked at the first bit of the book of Romans. We talked about why Romans, um, why start an organization through preaching through a book like that. We, we looked at sort of three main points. One, um, that the gospel is of God. This is the gospel of God. The gospel belongs to God, right? He says the terms. He's the one who reveals the gospel to us. We don't have the right to turn the gospel into whatever we want it to be to make the message our message. Rather, we have received a message. We have received good news from God himself. So the gospel of God belongs to God. Well, not only does it belong to God, but it's the gospel of God in that it's about God. That the good news that we proclaim as Christians is good news about God himself. That our God is righteous and that he is merciful and all these things that we could go on and on naming these attributes of God and those are good news to us. We said that the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. That in the message that Christians proclaim, that message is revealing the righteousness of God. And we ask the question, like, do you think about the gospel in that way as being about the righteousness of God? Do you consider the gospel and say, wow, I'm great. I'm special. God loves me just the way that I am because I'm his precious little flower. Like, do you think that? Or do you go, wow, God is righteous. He is just. He is wise. What kind of God is like this God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? That is what the gospel is about. It's a revelation of the righteousness of God. We should primarily think about God when we think about the gospel and be moved to worship him. We said that the gospel was the fulfillment. This gospel message is the fulfillment of the long prophesied worldwide reign of the Messiah. That the gospel that we'll unpack in the book of Romans is more than about you getting into heaven when you die. It's bigger than that. That's a part of it, and that's a glorious part of it, but that's just a part of it. The, the gospel is a story of cosmic redemption and reconciliation. It's way bigger than you can imagine. It's about God reconciling all things to himself through his son Jesus. And this was long prophesied. We looked from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, 15, all the way through Scripture. There's a promise of this reign of the Messiah. Then we move, say, if this is the gospel, this is what it is, then therefore we shouldn't be ashamed. We shouldn't be ashamed of this message. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That if you want to experience and know the power of God, you look to the gospel because that is where he has placed it. This is how God has determined to make his power known to us. Um, it's through this proclamation of the gospel. So therefore, don't be ashamed of it. Rather, rejoice in it, proclaim it, and trust it. That was the thing we talked about that was kind of difficult sometimes. It's just to trust that the gospel is powerful. And that we can place all of our trust in that. We can sort of put all our chips on that square. 
and that God has placed his power in the proclamation of the gospel. So that was last week. That's Romans 1, verses uh, 1 through 17. This week will be in verses 18 through 32 um, in Romans. So if the gospel is about the manifestation of the righteousness of God, then it is the power of a righteous God breaking into an unrighteous world. See, that's what we're going to see. The gospel is the manifestation of the righteousness of God keying on the idea that the world that we're in isn't so righteous, right? That, that we're not as familiar with this righteousness of God as we should be. We're, we're familiar with unrighteousness. So the, the gospel is the power of a righteous God breaking into an unrighteous world. Okay? That's a presupposition that the Bible starts with beginning in Genesis chapter 3, that the world is unrighteous, that the entire world is under the curse of sin and we're enslaved to sin and the world is wicked. Jesus uses this word wicked about even his friends. You know, he says, you who are wicked, do this. And, and the, the disciples don't go, Jesus, you serious? They're like, yeah, yeah, you're right, we're wicked, right? This is an assumption that the Bible uh, reveals to us. And so God in the gospel is breaking into this unrighteous world with his righteousness. We said the gospel uh, is good news. That's what the word means, right? But for good news to be good news, it must break into a bad situation, right? In order for good news to be good news, it must break into a bad situation. And the bad situation in which the gospel invades is the ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. But this is a bad situation. When we look around us and we see brokenness, we see suffering and despair and injustice around us, the Bible says the situation is the result of our own ungodliness, our own unrighteousness. And so the gospel is good news of the righteousness of God breaking into this mess. The sinfulness of mankind brings the wrath of a perfectly righteous God. And that's where we'll be seeing, uh, kind of looking at tonight, that the passage tonight will demonstrate uh, that reality. That because of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, a perfectly righteous God must act. And he breaks into this world, bringing wrath against this unrighteousness. So tonight's sermon is about the wrath of God. It's not a topic uh, that you choose to win friends and influence people uh, on a college campus, right? Uh, some of you might have heard that and just kind of cringed a little bit, right? Who, who wants to listen to a sermon about the wrath of God? You know, am I going to jump up on this table and shout fire and brimstone at you? Um, some of you might have grown up in churches that, that all you ever heard about was the wrath of God, and you're sick of hearing about the wrath of God. Somebody tell me about grace, but what I'm telling you tonight is I am going to tell you about grace. But we don't understand grace until we realize from what we've been saved. We don't understand the good news until we really understand what bad situation we're in. And so we're not trying to drum up a crowd by pleasing the... Uh, the uh, the affections and pleasing the desires of the world. We're, we're speaking on this because it's the Word of God. Right? This is God's revelation of Himself to us, and we need to know Him. 
So with all that said, sort of setting the stage, um, let's stand together and read the Word of God. We'll start in verse 18, Romans chapter 1. And this is the most important thing you'll hear me say tonight. This is the literal Word of God, right? So listen up. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their bodies to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's Word. You can be seated. So it's a real upbeat, chipper passage, right? (laughs) This is our situation. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven on all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. So here's the outline I will follow as we um, unpack unpack this passage tonight. Uh, Number one is verses 18 through 20. Humanity's rebellion against general revelation. Humanity's rebellion against general revelation. Number two, verses 21 through 23, the foolishness of idolatry. The foolishness of idolatry. Verses 24 through 32, God's righteous judgment on idolaters. God's righteous judgment on idolatry. So that's, that's where we're going to go. And, and I will admit, I'm going to try to get through this as quick as possible while doing the text justice. Um, and obviously there's going to be some hot topics addressed, some controversial issues in our society um, today. And 
I would like to, to have time at the end tonight uh, to open the floor for Q&A. So if there's anything that comes to mind as I'm teaching tonight, uh, a question, write that down. I'd love to address it. So number one, humanity's rebellion against general revelation. Here's the clickbait title for this point. God doesn't believe in atheists. God doesn't believe in atheists. So what we see here in verse 18 is that ungodly and unrighteous men, a.k.a. everybody apart from Christ, suppress the truth of God. Then we see in verses 19 through 20, the first half of verse 20, is that God has plainly revealed Himself to all people through the created world. Then verse 20, So those who do not worship God are left without a valid excuse to escape God's righteous wrath. So that's sort of the bullet points of this first heading. And so what we'll do now is we'll, we'll back up and address those. See, what this text shows us here, if you look closely, please follow along with me in the Bible, and this is coming from Scripture. The problem with unbelievers isn't that they lack knowledge, right? Oftentimes we think that if unbelievers just knew more information about God, about creation, whatever it may be, that they would simply believe, right? Maybe you're an unbeliever and you're just testing the waters on Christianity. Maybe you think that if you just had more information, if there was some proof then you would believe. But what the Scripture is showing us here is that the problem with unbelief isn't the lack of knowledge. It's the lack of righteousness. It's not the lack of knowledge. It's the lack of righteousness. Right? It says, uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They have the truth, and in their unrighteousness they suppress it. So the problem is not a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of righteousness. The scripture says that they know that God is there. And not just that everyone knows God is there, but that, that we all know that God is just in his judgment even. How do we know this? It says, the scripture says that this knowledge of God is plain to them. It's plain to everyone. And, and why is it plain? Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. See, see, here's something that we might miss in our English Bibles. The word plain and the word shown, if you're looking at ESV, is the same root in the Greek. But the idea here is that, that verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's the word for like shining. Um, and so it's like, it, it's the truth about God is shining. It's obvious. It's plain to them. Why? Because God has made it plain. God has shown the light. He's the one who's given this knowledge of God to all people. And in theology, we call this general revelation. General revelation. This is the idea that, that in creation, in all things that have been made, we look around, including ourselves, God is declaring something. He's speaking to something. He's revealing. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And so that when we look around, God has given all that we need to know to know that He is God, to know that He is powerful, right? It says that these specific invisible attributes of God have been not made known 
through what has been made. It says specifically His eternal power and divine nature. So there's no lack of information to prove and to be uh, well known that there is a God. There's no lack. He's provided it in abundance. He's made it plain to us. And this is through general revelation. Now, general revelation also includes the conscience. We all have been given a conscience by God. Now, our conscience isn't an infallible guide. What I mean by that is our conscience is affected by sin in the fall as well. And so we don't always feel guilty about, about what we should feel guilty about. And sometimes our conscience justifies ungodliness. But generally speaking, God has written this sense of right and wrong on the hearts of all people. And so your own conscience provokes you and tells you that you fall short. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who used this illustration of... Um, people dealing with the reality of judgment and moral standards. And he said, if, if you just had a recorder, now this was back in the day before we carried recorders around in our pockets. Um, he said, if, if you just put a recorder around your neck and walked around with it every day, and it only recorded every time that you said someone ought or ought not to do something. They, they ought to do that, or they ought not to do that. And that was the only thing the recorder captured. If God played that recorder back to you on Judgment Day, you would not live up to your own standard of righteousness. And we all know this, which is why we are all ashamed of ourselves. We all have this issue of, of guilt and shame that we know we don't measure up. We don't even measure up to our own standard. How much less do we measure up to the standard of a perfectly holy and righteous God? And we know this. It's in our heart. So what do we do about it? Do we, do we instantly just fall to our knees and confess our sin to God and, and, and depend upon His mercy and, and follow in His righteousness and give Him glory and give Him thanks for being God and being Creator? Is that what our natural inclination, our default setting is as humans? No. We hide from this truth. We, we turn our back on it. We try to ignore it. The, the Bible says that what do we do? It says, I keep picking up the wrong book. It says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. You push it down. You know what is true, but you try to ignore it. You push it down. Uh, the, a good analogy is this analogy of being in a pool with a beach ball. Have you ever done that? Had a, had a beach ball in a pool and you try to hold it down under the water, you know, and it's always trying to come back up, right? So you get on top of it and it rolls you off and all this kind of stuff, right? This is what a suppression of truth of God is like. It's like holding down a beach ball under the water. You try with all your might, you're constantly struggling to suppress this truth and you're constantly aware of it, right? And every so often you get out of control and that beach ball comes popping back up to the top. Our conscience is provoked. We see inconsistencies in our worldview. We deny God with our words, but we don't live as if there's no God. Right? There's inconsistency. That beach ball pops up. See, this doctrine of suppression of truth 
is important for shaping our doctrine of evangelism. So the Christians in the room, as you evangelize, if you should proclaim the gospel and, and, and seek to persuade people to turn to Christ and be saved, um, we need to understand this idea. The sinner, the unbeliever, does not lack information, does not lack knowledge. They lack righteousness. They're holding down a beach ball. So our job is to sort of push them a little bit so that the beach ball comes popping up. Our job is to expose the inconsistencies in their worldview. To say, hey, you say there is no God, but you don't believe that it's good to eat other humans. Why? Why is that wrong to eat other humans? And then that just is a fun conversation to have. <laughs> because ultimately what you're revealing, that's a moment where that beach ball comes popping up. Because the only thing that they can say that's rational and logical in that moment is because I don't like it. And it's like, okay, well, who elected you to be God? Right? Who made your opinion ultimate? Right? There is a moral... So what you're telling me, you non-cannibal, is that there is a moral standard that you're willing to enforce upon other people. Right? That's just one example. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this as, as we move along through Romans. There's many opportunities. But that's what we're trying to do when we evangelize. We're just showing people that they're living in God's world, denying Him. It's foolishness. It's not going to work. The beach ball is going to pop back up with any effort. So if you are an unbeliever in this room and you feel the pressure of the beach ball, you feel that, uh, stop the fight. Stop the struggle. Realize that you can live in this world at peace because you know the Creator. It moves on. It says, because of this, because men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth, they've seen God's work they know that he's there because God has made it clear to them. You know, and let's think about this. If you watch, you know, if you're like me, you, you've been in, you've seen the sort of internet atheists. It's a special type of atheist, the internet atheists. Um, you, you've seen these arguments of there's just a lack of information, right? If God would put it there, he hasn't given me enough. Here's what I would just say to this, that type of argument. God thinks he has. God thinks that he has given you enough. He has made it plain to you, is what God himself says. And so, who are you, oh man, to speak back to God, to question his ways? The Bible says that because God has made it known, they are without excuse. This word is anapologetus. We talked about the word uh, 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 apologia, apologia in Greek, the word for make a defense uh, a few weeks ago in our community group at Perimeter Road. This word is related to that. It's anapologetus. It's, it's without a defense. It's the idea of not having a legal defense for your position. That you're, you're without excuse. The Bible says because of all that you've seen, you have no reason not to honor and give thanks to God that will hold up in His court. No reason there will be no uh, forgiveness for you on the day of judgment if you deny God based on all that you've seen. Apart from Christ, there's no hope. You are without excuse. Now, because of our corrupt hearts, 
we are crafty and inventing countless ways to suppress the truth of God. We come up with a variety of ways, and sometimes it's not as, as clear-cut as we think. So, for example, one way we suppress the truth of God is in false religion. Right? We, we pretend to be worshiping God, right? And, but that's the way we suppress the truth of God, in false religion. So there's countless ways uh, to suppress this truth of God. But any attempt to suppress the truth of God is foolishness. Why? Because it, because it doesn't comport with reality. Right? It doesn't comport with reality. It's not living in the world that God has made. And so it's going to be foolish. And that leads us to the second point. The foolishness of idolatry. Any attempt to suppress the truth of God while living in the world that He made is like looking around in this room taking in the color of the walls, turning your head, closing your eyes, and pretending that the walls are neon green. You go around saying, hey, the walls in the room, the rose room, that you see, are lime green. Why? That's foolish. It's foolish because it's a lie. No matter how crafty you get in justifying your belief in lime green walls, at the end of the day, it's a lie, and you know it. This is what suppressing the truth of God is like. It's lying green walls. Verse 21 says that when you refuse to worship God, you become a fool. That's a word that we don't use a lot, especially in these types of formal settings, fool. But the Bible is quite comfortable with using that word. It uses the word a lot. It's nothing new. Paul's not making something up here. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The baselessness, the base of foolishness is the denial of God. It's, it's the denial of the reality that's around you. The Bible says, look at, look at the words that it used to describe those who deny God and refuse to worship Him. It, it uses phrases like, they became futile in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened. They claiming to be wise, they became fools, right? It, the Bible is, is lumping up phrases to say, hey, you have, you're living as a fool in this world. Idolatry is literally foolishness. And that's something that, you know, that as a, as a parent, the father trying to teach my children um, morality, right and wrong, how to obey God and why we obey God. I want them to realize that their disobedience, their sin, is foolishness. It does not lead to happiness. It does not lead to flourishing in their lives. It leads to pain and destruction. Right? And so it's good news that I'm telling you this, that idolatry is foolish. It is something to be avoided. Why is it foolish? Why is it literally stupid? Look at verse 23. It's foolish because you made an infinitely stupid trade. You made an infinitely stupid trade. Why? It says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What a dumb trade. Right? You take, you have the glory of the immortal God who created all things with a word, who has existed as long as you want to go back in time without change and will exist as far forward in time as you want to go. He is the same 
always. You exchange that glory for the glory of statues that look like mortal man. And if that's not bad enough, birds and animals and creeping things. It's foolish. It's a stupid trade. Why would you trade it? But here's the thing. You're not going to talk to anybody on campus who's an atheist or an unbeliever and they're going to say, yeah, I made the trade of the glory of the, you know, the immortal God for images of mortal men and creeping things. Yeah, I, I did that. Uh, I'm aware of that. No, no. Most of the time, fools don't know they're foolish. <laughs> that is what's annoying about fools. They don't know they're foolish. They think they're wise, right? The scripture says claiming to be wise, they became fools. So you may have seriously strong desires and rationalizations for whatever keeps you from God. That is probably very true. But what the Bible is saying here is your heart has been darkened by sin. Your thinking is futile. You are suppressing the truth in bondage to your sinful desires. Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, said this. He says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. You're not free. You're in bondage. You're a slave to sin. But then he says, but if the Son sets you free, then, and only then, will you be free indeed. So you might be thinking, you're thinking clearly. It all makes sense to you. But you're living in this world proclaiming the walls are lime green. It's foolishness. Point number three. God has been provoked by this human rebellion, this refusal to acknowledge Him and worship Him in the world that He has created. And so He has revealed His wrath from heaven. So we see God's righteous judgment on idolaters. God's wrath has been revealed from heaven. This is the bad situation we find ourselves in. Theologians refer to the concept that we're about to look at here in this passage as judicial abandonment. Judicial abandonment. The idea here is that in God's judgment for sin and rebellion, rather than intervening, He withdraws. He says, hands off. Like, you want sin. You want your own selfish desires. Take them, and they will destroy you. That is an act of judgment. Of God. Giving over um, to sin is an act of judgment. That word, gave them up, that phrase there, is used three times in this passage. And anytime you see repetition in Scripture, it's important. You see, ink and paper was very expensive in the first century. You didn't waste, waste it, right? They're trying to make a point. God gave them up is used three times in this passage. A sure sign of the judgment of God upon a person or a people is an acceleration of sinful and perverse desires. You get that? Why? Because God's hand of restraint has been removed. I think you talked about that this morning, Mike, right in community group, about we don't realize often that part of God's love towards his people and his grace is restraining the wickedness in our hearts. You're, you're not as evil as you could be, Right? You could, also, you could be a lot more wicked. The most evil person you could think of 
could have been even more evil and wicked if not been for the restraint of God. And so a sure sign of the judgment of God is when there is an acceleration of sinful and perverse desires. So, be careful of this. A calloused conscience is deadly. We talked about that conscience being something that God has created in us, but that conscience can become calloused and hardened. If we ignore it long enough, if we continue to suppress that truth, it, it becomes our heart becomes hard and, and God gives us over to our suppression. God gives us over to our sin. And so if you're feeling conviction, like when we preach the Word, we preach through the book of Romans, there's not going to be a single one of us that survived this book of Romans without getting our toes stepped on. Right? We're all going to be called out in this, this sermon and all the rest of them. Right? So if you're feeling conviction, repent now. Turn to Jesus. There's mercy. But you're not promised an opportunity to repent tomorrow. Who knows if your last act of suppression is tonight. That you have hardened your heart and it is calloused. So repent while there is still opportunity of conviction and repentance. Now, here's the part y'all came for. The part you paid for. Paul moves on from this. He sets this up, right? We have fallen. God has revealed His wrath from heaven on unrighteousness. You know, we, we trade the glory of God for the glory of other things, right? We worship other things. And then he moves on here without skipping a beat into talking about homosexuality. Is that because he was watching Fox News? No. Some of you just looked at me like, really? Paul didn't watch Fox News? <laughs> Glad he didn't. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Paul specifically chooses homosexuality as the prime example of idolatry taken to the extreme. This passage presents homosexuality as the pinnacle of idolatry. That it is a textbook case. And so, I'm going to try to explain this the best I can, demonstrate this from the Scripture. Why does Paul go there? Why does he make the step from idolatry to homosexuality. And, and by the way, that is what he's talking about there. You know, I don't know how much I need to explain to you guys um, in this passage. Um, verse 26 and following. Uh, we see these dishonorable pass uh, passions and, and, and things like that in this passage. So why does he go there? Homosexuality is a physical demonstration of the foolish exchange made in idolatry. Okay? So I'm going to just preface this. I've got a, I feel the need. I'm in a room bunch of Gen Zers. I'm going to use some harsh language that might be stronger than you're used to hearing. Okay? I want you to listen to the arguments. I want you to listen to the, 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 the thought and the, the flow of the Scripture here and understand that, that what we're talking about here uh, are truths, what we're talking about here are ideologies and beliefs and practices that are damaging. And I'm not talking about people. Okay? So, if you're a person who struggles with homosexuality or identifies as homosexual or anything along those lines, I ask for patience 
And I ask for you not to immediately put up defenses thinking I'm attacking you. Okay? Can we make that distinction that, that someone can talk about your sin, talk about practices in which you engage without talking about you as a person? I'm just asking for that from you. That I would give you the same if this conversation was turned the other way. So homosexuality is a physical demonstration of the foolish exchange made in idolatry. Why? A couple reasons. One, it is the rejection of what is natural for what is unnatural. Okay? Look at that closely and look at the surrounding context. The word natural here, or nature, is used three times. Right? It's emphasized here that there is an exchange of what is natural for what is unnatural. When was the last time there was an exchange in this passage? The exchange for the creator, for the creation. And so what we see here is, is at bottom of this, is at bottom of homosexuality is a rejection of the creator and his design. Right? It's natural. Why is there a natural function and a natural manifestation of sexuality um, that we call heterosexuality, I guess, um, why is that natural? Because there's a creator God who, who set it up, who says, this is the way it's going to be. I've made them male and female. The image of God, right? He has, he's done this. And so this practice overturns that and rejects the creator and his design for sexuality. And, and even more these days in sexuality, it's even down to identity and personhood. But this is a foolish exchange. Just a couple reasons here we go on with that. One is it's fruitless. Fruitless. Homosexual sex is fruitless. There's nothing beautiful about it. Actually, it's quite disgusting. It's fruitless. It does not produce life. Heterosexual sex within the covenant of marriage if God has designed it, is fruitful. It produces life and blessing, and joy, beyond the self-desire for pleasure. Like that's there too, obviously. But it continues to bear fruit. Right? God designed it to be that way. Right? And so, homosexuality is, is, is fruitless. It is, it is not produced life. Actually, it's quite the contrary. It's a foolish exchange in the same way that these walls being lime green would be. It's because it's a complete ignoral of obvious anatomical function. Do we have to go there? But sometimes we just need to be made plain, right? What's, what's going on? So this rejection of what is natural for what is unnatural is a foolish exchange, just like exchanging the creator for the creature. Because at the bottom, it's the same thing. Here's something you probably haven't thought about. Homosexuality is a rejection of the doctrine of the Trinity in favor of Unitarianism. Those are $5 words, okay? The Trinity. What do we believe about the Trinity? God is one person existing in... Or sorry, woo, heretic. God is one <laughs> being, one God, sharing three... Golly, y'all kicked me out and burned me at the stake. I'm getting this wrong. <laughs> I got in my head now. God is one divine being, exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. So there is diversity within the Godhead. Right? 
The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, right? There, there is diversity within the Godhead that shares this one divine essence. Unitarianism is that there's just one person in God. There is no diversity within the Godhead. So homosexuality, and particularly gay marriage or gay mirage, as you prefer to call it, is the denial of the necessity of diversity in the image of God. Right? God says, I'm going to make man in, in my image, and I make, I'm going to make them male and female. Male and female, he made them in the image of God. And so what homosexual relationships do is deny the necessity of male and female in the image of God. Deny the necessity of diversity within the image of God. And it's, it's funny that that's happening in a day in which we value diversity. You know, diversity is on every banner. But we're actually doing quite the opposite of that, aren't we? Right? We're, we're, we're moving towards this. I, I've called this before. This, it's this androgynous, mushy middle of male and female. We don't, there's no distinction anymore. It's, it's unitarianism. It's a denial of the God who is there. And finally, and this is the, the, the chief reason here, is homosexuality is the worship of self. It's the worship of the self-image. Right? It, it's turning to someone who is just like you and not to the other. And so it is obvious why this is an example of idolatry taken to the extreme. And then it continues on. Now, there's some, some language here that I just want us to, to talk about. And, and again, I, I know many of you just might be kind of flinching when I use these terms, but we need to have this conversation because we need to understand what the Bible says about these things. You know, uh, too long, a lot of you guys have listen to Christian leaders who have been afraid to talk to you about these things, especially on campus. You're not going to find a whole lot of campus ministers in a Christian organization that are going to speak to you straight up like adults from the Word of God like I'm going to tonight because they're worried about offending you. They're worried about you going and telling somebody and them getting in trouble and them losing their job. I'm not worried about that. I've got another job. But I, I, will, I respect you guys and want to speak to you like adults from the Word of God because that's what He's called us to do. And so I'm going to continue because the Scriptures continue. Verse 24. It says, God gave them up to, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So what we see here is that this homosexuality is dishonorable. It's not good. It's not something to be celebrated. It's dishonorable. See, there needs to be a proper place for honor. We understand what is honorable, what is dishonorable from God's perspective. Why is it dishonorable? Verse 24, it dishonors the body. And we talked about that. It dishonors the obvious design of God's body. Not God's body, man's body. It's designed by God. Verse 27 says that this, this practice consumes you. Consumes your heart. This word consume is the word burned. So if you had a King James, it says it burned with passion. It's the idea of being consumed like a fire. And this is true. It consumes you, which kind of leads to the next point. It destroys life. It destroys life. It, not only is it fruitless, but it actually destroys life. It says, the scripture says, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We see this in many ways. One's the, the prevalence of disease. 
two, and it's, it's extremely sad right now, is, is suicide. Listen to this. A recent study just came out that suggests that one-third of gay youths have attempted suicide. Nearly one-third of gay youths has attempted suicide in their life. This, no, one-third, 33%. I don't know if that sounds high to you or low to you, but this is nearly five times more than straight peers. People who are in the same boat for every other reason but this particular issue. Five times more. Why? They will say because of stuff like I'm doing tonight. That I'm contributing to that because I'm not celebrating and affirming their identity and their practice. And I will say it's because you're denying God and the world that He has made. You're exhausted from pushing the beach ball underwater and keeping it underwater and keeping it underwater and keeping it underwater. And you're exhausted. If there's no hope, there's no hope for you. There's no redemption. There's no design, no purpose in your life. What else are you going to do? I think that's far more cogent, far more rational of an argument to say, they're hopeless because they have no reason to hope. Not because, not because I'm here saying, hey, you have reason to hope. Not because of that. So here's the thing, guys. If we're going to proclaim this gospel, this good news of the righteousness of God on this campus, we have to go here. This is one of the biggest idols on this campus. We have to go there. Because people are suffering. People are dying, and that is tragic. Our hearts should break. We should not get on our high horse and say, run out all the gays. Right? We shouldn't do that. Our hearts should break. Our hearts should mourn because they are in God's world denying themselves of all the blessings that come with that. And more importantly, more importantly, God is being denied the glory that He is owed. That should provoke us more than anything. That God is being denied. Our God, the one who made heavens and earth, the one who's redeemed us from the pit, is being denied. And so we go and we bring this message. And we will be slandered. Right? Jesus says, don't be surprised. They hated me, they'll hate you. Right? They called Jesus a slanderer. They called, they called him a, a drunk and a glutton. Right? What, they, what will they call us? We will be slandered. But our confidence is in the Word of God, the Gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. So, we do not honor homosexuality or any of the other letters in the alphabet soup. LGBTQRPXYZ. We do not honor those things. We actually abominate it as God does in Leviticus 18. Why? Because it brings death. Guys, sin is bad because it's destructive. It brings death. Sin is forbidden because it's destructive and brings death. It is not destructive because it is forbidden. No, it is forbidden because it's destructive. That is why we care. Now, I've pushed strongly towards that because I feel like, myself included, all of us in this room have the tendency to be reluctant to call this out because 
were surrounded by the opposite of what I just said. But also, we need to also hear this. We do honor those who practice homosexuality as image bearers of God. We treat them with respect because they bear the image of God. We honor their dignity by treating them as human beings, right? By having conversations with them, by thinking that they are actually able to handle confrontation and actually being able to handle arguments and discussions about things that matter eternally. We dignify them. We don't put them in a class and say, hey, those people, they're just lepers, isolated. Let them be. No. We honor them. We dignify them. God made them in his image. Sent his son to die and atone for their sins that they might be saved. And we honor their dignity by extending the gospel of grace to them and welcome them into fellowship, into a fellowship of grace around the table as we have done tonight. You notice we didn't stop and check cards at the door. Your sexual identity, please. No. You're welcome. Why? Because you're in the image of God. That's why we love you and we welcome you. We will speak truth to you and we will be glad to have follow-up conversations on this. But you're welcome to fellowship around the table and experience God's grace as we've done tonight. Now, as we wind down, homosexuality is a heinous and gross sin according to Scripture. But it isn't the only sin listed in this passage. Right? It isn't the only sin that's listed in this passage that is worthy of death. Hear that. Worthy of death under the wrath of God. And we continue on in verse 28. God gave them up to this debased mind to do what ought not to be done. All, excuse me, all manner of unrighteousness. Now there isn't anything on this list that we aren't filled with or haven't been filled with at some time. Just look at the list. We're all guilty. And all of these are the result of a debased mind. So your gossiping tongue comes from the same pit of hell as homosexuality. Right? Put it to death. Repent. Turn to Jesus. This comes from the pit of hell. See, without the grace of God, we're all totally depraved. Theologians refer to total depravity as this idea that sin has affected the totality of your being. Everything about you has been tainted by sin. You know, uh, I use this illustration that I got from Ray Ortland that he says if, if sin were the color blue, everything about you would be a shade of blue. It's affected everything about you. And this is how we are apart from the grace of God. And so we need mercy. We stand at the need of mercy. And we know, deep down, we know that we're sinners against the holy God. We know that we deserve his wrath. The Bible even says that we know that we deserve death for the things that we have done. Yet apart from Christ, apart from Christ we continue in our sinful rebellion. Not only that, we give approval to those who join us. We're hopeless, completely enslaved to sin. This is the bad situation that the gospel of Jesus invades. This is setting the course for the rest of the book of Romans to say, 
Here is the mystery of the gospel. How in the world can a holy and righteous judge justify people like this? People like us. How is that problem? How is that possible? See, our problem with much of what was said tonight and what will be said in the future is that it says bad things about us. But really, the mystery of the gospel is how can God justify and save, redeem people like us? That is the proper posture to understand this. This is the situation we're in. And we see, we know, we know that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. Even in the foretaste that we have already experienced in the evil and suffering and death in the world today. What we don't know, at least experientially, prior to the gospel, is the righteousness of God that brings righteousness and healing and life. Coram Deo exists to make this good news known to the issue. You don't have to be enslaved to your corrupt passions. You can be freed from a life of condemnation and guilt. You don't have to continually struggling with all your might to keep that beach ball underwater. You can be free. You can be forgiven. And you can be righteous in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. But to turn to Jesus today. Repent and believe. Be saved and build up in Christ. So, that's the end of this one. We want to pray. And then um, feel free to, we'll continue out and, and sing. Um, but after we finish singing and, and, and give the benediction, if you have questions, well, I'd like to have a brief time of Q&A before we leave. Um, so uh, let's pray and then we'll sing. God, we do thank you that you have not hidden this, this, this news from us that you have not completely removed your hand from us so that we would be completely blinded to the reality of our own sin and our own idolatry. But you have shown light into the darkness. You have revealed the things about us that, that bring your wrath and your anger. And you haven't just revealed that to make us hopeless and despair. But you revealed this so that we may know your righteousness in Christ. And God, I pray that, that our hearts would be turned towards Him, that we would not look to ourselves and sense any righteousness in and of ourselves, anything good in us. There is no good in us apart from You. So God, I pray for these students who will leave this place and go into a world who is hostile to the message that they just heard. God, I pray that You would strengthen them by Your Spirit. Give them confidence in Your Word. God, may they know from their own experience that this gospel is the power of God and salvation. But we know that our Redeemer lives, that the world did not like the message He preached. Put Him to death. And He went to the grave. And He rose for us. Demonstrating that He is indeed King, that He is Savior, and then now, by faith in Him, we are united in His resurrection. And, and though we die, yet may we live. And so may our hope and confidence be found in Him tonight, tomorrow, and every day forward forever. So that, that He would be glorified as the Savior of sinners and King of this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.